When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Stop Hammer Time. Uh, my name is Phil Whelans and with me uh, are Jim Grant. Hello, Jim. Good evening. Also joining us, a regular guest of the podcast uh, who has uh, his own microphone for the podcast and so will therefore sound better than us. And that's not surprising because he was uh, a Guardian journalist and is now one of Britain's uh, most enterprising entrepreneurs, <laughs> young businessman of the year, in my opinion, although he is he's now advancing in years. But, but uh, to me, he will always be a businessman of the year. It is Benji Lanyardo. Hey Phil, and yours is the opinion I only is the only opinion I care about. Oh, good. Well, that's 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 good because I uh, um, I I'm one of the head people in the Confederation of British Industry, the CBI, and uh, so my opinion counts for a great a great deal when talking about young business people, young entrepreneurs. We're uh, doing a, probably our fifth show in uh, lockdown, so we are all in our separate homes. Um, we've been using Skype, but now we're using Skype where we can see each other. And uh, this... Uh, it's a kind of idea of Skype, though, isn't it, really? I mean, I we, suppose it was, yeah. was concern of whether the video would affect the sound quality. That's what it was. Also, but, I think... But, it's a bit bit of a loophole because Skype was like the video platform of like a decade ago and everyone has since moved on to much more sort of fashionable mediums, which means the video and audio quality is quite good here because I don't think anyone, we're the only three people in the world still on using Skype. Skype. No. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I've just done a pub quiz just this evening on uh, House Party. House yeah, Party. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to hear something quite funny in West Ham related about House Party? Okay. Is that yeah. sort of tangentially? So the thing about House Party is that you can be in a group, and sort of anyone can join. And I was, um, I was having like a sort of dinner date with with um, with my wife and two other couple friends of ours, and then suddenly Uncle Jeff just popped up in our house party. <laughs> the Uncle Jeff coefficient. Yeah, famously the Uncle Jeff coefficient, and he um, and he started talking to me about West Ham without realizing <laughs> that there were other people in the chat. That seems very strange. That seems odd. Yes, because obviously people that aren't used to what it is might think it's like Facebook and uh, yeah. not realize that people are just having a kind of personal conversation with each other. Interesting. I'm going to read you some of the answers from uh, the pub quiz I've just done and see if you can work the question out. Um, Gandhi. 
Um, uh, it's gonna. Well, is that the film or the or the? So this is related to the film or the man. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think it might be a question about maybe David Lean as a director or something. No, it's a question about who assassinated this particular figure. What particular figure ah. was assassinated by this person in 1948? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, no. Let's not do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Benji, your uh, your your Skype address, and I'm not going to give it away, invokes Steve Potts. Correct. And the likelihood of him playing for England. It, in fact, claims that he should play for England. And um, that's as good a place to start this podcast as any. Steve Potts was a, a hugely underrated footballer, I think. I think he completely should have played for England. I've got a feeling, though, he was, wasn't he, was he American, Steve Potts? I've got a uh, feeling he was, that he... Yeah, he was American. Uh, yeah, which was... He, you know, could have, uh, in, the, in the same way that, you know, various other people could have, you know, um, various Irish and Welsh and Canadian people. It wasn't Owen Hargreaves yeah. Canadian. I think he's British, but raised in Canada yeah. and then Germany. yeah. yeah. Greg Rosetsky was Britain's second best tennis player for many, many years. Um, but Steve, Steve Potts is actually quite a good segue to, to one of the questions I wanted to ask you guys. Um, is that so? He, he was, I think, he was Hammer of the Year in 92, 93, 93, 94, which was the absolute furnace of my early passion for West Ham. I was maybe right. so 92, I was eight. And one of the questions, um, Phil, you you asked us to think of questions to ask you uh, to ask each other. Yes. And I was, and and my question that I wanted to ask you was, who is the niche West Ham player that stole your heart that almost everyone else will have forgotten about? Because mine is Matty Holmes. I don't know why, yes. but I've always been very very into Matty Holmes because. And I realise this now is that he was playing for West Ham and was quite an exciting winger at the exact time, i.e. the age of eight to about ten, where I was falling head over heels in love with West Ham. Actually, I looked him up and um, he came to West Ham uh, when when Redknapp came from being Bournemouth manager to be assistant to Billy Bonds in 92. Played for us for three years. Then we sold him to Blackburn the year after they won the title. And then his career was ended by Kevin Muscat. Um, I've forgotten about all of this and he got a quarter of a million pound payout anyway so Matty Holmes is my niche West Ham player that I was deeply in love with but I'm sure everyone else has has, has sort of forgotten about who is yours well we had a couple of uh, injury um, uh, players who left us and then had their careers ended by injury um it was quite a serial thing because in a similar time frame, Matthew Rush was quite good for us on the way. We like Matty Rush. Yeah. And we sold, who did we sell him to? Was it Blackburn again or did we get him from Blackburn? Um, I, no, I think it might have been, For- was it Forrest? This is this is the beauty of being at home. We can Wikipedia that. I want to say it's but maybe could have been Ipswich, but yes, you're right about uh, Matty Holmes went to Blackburn, got injured. Matthew Rush, Norwich, God, correct. Anyway. And, 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 and I'm right. looking at Wikipedia now. It's it's Norwich, and he only played about Norwich. 
And then he got a, a, almost a career-ending injury. And didn't Steve Jones go somewhere and get injured and his career came to a very short end? You know, a lot of people would say he wasn't all that good. But uh, well, I like Steve Jones. Um, so we had quite a few players that we... we you know, didn't reach. They didn't reach their full potential with us, and then they went somewhere else, and then got career-ending sort of injuries. Um, Someone who I've liked more recently, who went somewhere else and uh, hasn't had a career-ending injury, is Stanislas. I thought he was a fantastic player. Uh, I yes. Go, but of the of the era you're talking about, I would say. Uh, it wasn't really kind of niche because everyone liked him at the time. But I I, I love Danny Williamson for the short oh. one. Well, that's another one. He went to Everton, didn't he? For yeah, and then he, yeah, and then he did get an injury. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Uh, well, the interesting, about the interesting about Danny Williamson is that, uh, in, a, in a way, um, Frank Lampard's, uh, his kind of ire and rancour about West Ham that makes uh, West Ham fans dislike him and describe him as uh, heavy set. Uh, comes down to a period when he'd got himself into the team uh, around Hearts and Kitson time, 96-97. And then, you know, we there was a feeling that perhaps in, in the odd game, he was settling back on his haunches because he was getting picked every week and would put in some quite lazy performances. Meanwhile, snapping at his heels in the same position is Danny Williamson, who I liked as well. I thought Williamson was good. Uh, but was, uh, and I think part of that, um, you know, this sort of completely irrational rage that Frank Lampard carries with him away from West Ham, the team that made him paid his wages, taught him to play football uh, and picked him every week. Um, it's to do with the fact that at the other time, you know, uh, the manager seemed not to see another player that could conceivably get in that position and play it really well. Well, Redknapp also... Redknapp famously backed him to the hilt. There's that really interesting press conference that yeah. does the rounds now where someone, someone, whether it's from the Newham Recorder or whoever it is, is basically saying, as you just said, that he's not pulling his weight. And Redknapp, to his enormous credit, I think, absolutely backed him to the hill and said, this, this lad will play for England. This, this guy is going to go right to the very top. And, you know, say what you want about Lampard. Say what you want about Redknapp. Redknapp was absolutely correct. Yes. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I, I, around about that time when uh, Lampard was coming through, I watched I used to watch quite a lot of the youth team games in those days because there was the young there was young Ferdinand and then obviously the, the team that came up behind them with Carrick and Cole and and uh, and, and so on. And um, it was very clear, you know, you you you'd watched games where they they played sort of under eighteen. Uh, he was like an adult playing amongst boys. Lampard. Yeah. Even at yeah, at that st- even at that stage, you know, it, uh, incredibly powerful shot on him for a kid at that that age, and and just you know, even at that uh, age, had that instinctive timing of runs into the box, and you know, he he was quite a, you know, it's unfortunate the way it's all turned out. Um, what uh, a, what I understood was quality. He was a really good player. 
what I understood, and I might have got this wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, the reason that he had a, had a bit of a, a few shots at West Ham after he left is because we sacked his dad. You know, is it as simple as that? Well, no, yes, it is from his, it is on his part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, um, you know, I think he left a season before the relegation season, the season that we got um, uh, relegated in 2003. So then Glenn Johnson, Paolo Di Canio, Freddie Canute, Joe Cole, I mean, the whole team disappeared. He'd gone like maybe one season before. Uh, well, he'd gone the, the, the summer that, Harry Lampard was fired. He felt he felt his position was under. And I mean, that says something about the man. It's like, can't you continue playing for the team that? Because obviously, sorry, I'm saying this in all the wrong order. Uh, can you not play for the team where the manager's been fired because the manager is a relative? Is that so hard for you to do? You're a fucking professional footballer. Of course, his his. Dad and his uncle have both been fired at the same time. It's a complete family thing that he sees as a slight to him, so his position is untenable. Is it untenable? You're a fucking professional. Just play for the fucking team. Unfortunately, he's completely vindicated all the way along the line because then the team gets relegated, you know, a year later and we're in the, the, the championship. But um, but also, you know, what what, what we... You know, spoke about before. I remember a lot of those games very well, and he he was he could not put a shift in in quite a lot of games once he was on the team sheet every week. In his autobiography, he goes, the fans started booing me. I don't know why. I just got booed. They all hated me. Then they fired my dad and, and my uncle. Everything's poor me, poor me. I hate West Ham United. You know, that's his version of that story. Yeah, I mean... I it, it was we did get frustrated as fans i think watching games where you know he hadn't really had his best game but he would never be the one that was substituted even though it was crying out i don't think he was ever when he started a game substituted by by Redknapp, um and tended once he was once he'd established himself even if he was on a kind of poor run of form he always got picked and i think that opened up even if it wasn't true it opened up the perception that there was nepotism involved and it was an easy stick to beat him with to a certain extent but then of course then he you know he turned around and used it as, as you say Phil very petulantly in the end I mean it, it, it's, it's a shame when you when you think you know we had him and we had Ferdinand and we had that next crop of players plus you know players of the quality of Di Canio and Canita it's extraordinary the West Ham team in the early 2000s didn't go on and, and, and sort of in, in the big money yeah. established itself. You know, we really, we really missed the trick, didn't we? So badly. Yeah. And it all began with the selling of, of Ferdinand, I suppose. Yeah. Could, but your, um, you know, bringing up Lampard makes, makes you, you mentioned earlier that um, before we, uh, we started the podcast that we haven't talked over the years, very much about Paul Ince. And, of course, he features a lot in the seasons, Benji, that we've been talking about in previous weeks, um, that, that sort of, you know, the relegation season and, and, and uh, the early, uh, those two years in the championship. Um, uh, well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we've been doing this podcast for 12 years and, uh, and, and there is a, obviously there is a, this, this sort of bizarre idea 
you know, it's, it's, got, it's sort of a bizarre idea, but but that that Paul Ince is, you know, is sort of just absolute bet noir of the football club. He's a Judas. He's all this. He's all that. And um, after I left college, I sort of came back and I was sort of starting to regularly watch the team in those seasons. That's those three. Lyle years after the boys of 86 season. And this was a terrible time. We finished, after finishing third, we finished 15th. And then I finished 16th next year. And then it's 18th and we get relegated. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, and he plays. That's when he's playing for us. That's yeah. when but he was fantastic. Yeah, he was good. Fantastic. It's funny, Phil. Phil, you you talk about this um, idea of him as being the Judas. It's that I think a lot of that's to do with timing. So again, my my first kind of cognizant season as a West Ham fan was probably probably the ninety two ninety three champion uh, division one season. So we'd been relegated the previous season under like Mike Small, and we went back up when there were when the big match was still on, and we had Mark Robson in midfield. Yes. And so I was go, I was starting to go regularly to Upton Park. And all I remember is there was there was um of Paul Ince was that he happened to feature that season in like the, some of the Premier League advertising um uh, some of the advertising you get above the urinals and yeah. on every single urinal that featured Paul Ince someone had written Judas yeah, yeah. over him so so I, I all I knew is that he was a bad person and I'd never seen him be brilliant for us. He was, you know, when when I when I started to go, he was like the best player on the pitch every time. It, I mean, he was really extraordinary. Arguably, he he because he plays in eighty six, eighty seven. Then he plays quite regularly eighty seven, eighty eight, and quite regularly eighty eight, eighty nine, and then we go down. And yeah. um, you know, I wonder whether he should have played more in eighty six, eighty seven. You know. Um, and whether Lyle was reluctant to sort of break apart his um, his team, and also he just bought Stuart Robson, uh, yeah. and um, you know, obviously in eighty six, eighty seven, Bonzo comes back and is. Uh, um, hammer of the year, famously only having played about eleven games because every because the fans were so furious at how shit we were after our third place finish the previous year. But Ince plays a few games those season. Yeah, uh, I didn't see a lot of games in that season, I have to say. But um, so, so my, my my understanding with Ince, and again, correct me if I got this wrong, is that he posed in a Man United shirt whilst he was still playing for us. Is Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. His transfer was on because we got relegated. So in the same way that um, Cole Johnson, Canio, Canute, Sinclair, everyone left after we got relegated. He left after we got relegated. He, he, he was a promising young. He was an incredibly promising young footballer and a real prodigy. But is this not an example of like there is a good and bad way of leaving a football club, you know? Like there, and we've seen, you know, the players that I adored, like Defoe, did it badly about ten minutes after we got relegated. Carrick, God bless him, played a season in the Championship with us. Yeah. And there's other examples of like Pascal Chimbonda putting a transfer request in his shin pad and this kind of thing. And it just struck me that. That Ince had left badly, and that was his fault. And that is something to say. All right, that that that's not right. He yeah. did leave 
he did look badly, but I think he was uh, he was young and naive. He had a manipulative agent called Ambrose Mendy, and uh, I don't think you know. I think uh, in uh, the, the the photograph from from Inter's perspective, I don't think was intended to be a kind of fuck you to the to West Ham fans. It was naivety and um, well, it was actually logistics because he left over that summer and he was just going to leave in the same way that Canio left. But we got relegated, so Canio left. Uh, we got relegated. I don't think he left over the summer. He, there, there were a couple of games. He, he was in the team for the first for the first game of the next season. Yeah, he did the whole. You know, kind of standing in there with his arms folded. He didn't want, clearly didn't want to be play, which I think was a game that it was away, and I didn't go. But I think it was might have been Stoke. I think it might have been the game in which McAvenny had his leg broken by Kamara. I think it might have been the same game. Yeah, I might be wrong about that though. But but he um, but he it was a sort of logistic thing because he was going. He, the deal had been done as far as he knew with Manchester United, and. Uh, he went on holiday and his agent said, let's, let's get you. He's, that picture's either taken while he's on holiday or before yeah. he's going to leave. Let's get you in a picture with the shirt anyway before you go on holiday or something like that. There's a weird logistic reason. Yeah. It's not kind of going, I like Manchester United more uh, than West Ham. You know, it's, he thinks he's going to play for them. So he gets a picture taken in the shirt. And the, and the, the truth is, is that I'm just looking at his Wikipedia page now. This was a Rolls Royce of a player. He, after us, the next three clubs he played for was Manchester United in, in that amazing sort of mid-90s United team. Then into Milan, where he basically scored one in five over two seasons. And then Liverpool. You know, this, yeah. this was an absolutely... It, it, maybe it's one of those where you just have to accept this player was bigger than West Ham, actually, at the time. So good luck to him. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, th- those are players that, unfortunately, the, um, you know, we we let down. Those after after 1986, those three years where, I mean, not only do we not push on, it's difficult to push on from third place. We catastrophically fall off a cliff in a kind of long suicide note. That lasts three seasons. Yeah, I mean, two, you know, two seasons where we, where we finish just above the relegation places, and then we find one where we finally go down. And in that, this emerging player is coming through, Paul Ince, who is fucking amazing. I remember the first time I I sort of saw him, you know, for ninety minutes was in about eighty seven, eighty eight, and this guy was like, you know, just brilliant. He was, he was terrific. Um, you know, Trivia had a great shot on him. He was the complete midfielder in many ways because he could he, he could put a tackle in, he could break play up, but he was also an attacking attacking player as well. The new Billy Bonds. Yeah, yeah, and and the, the point you made, I think you 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 alluded to the fact that actually he came into a midfield and didn't establish a kind of regular place because there was still Dickens at the club. There was Robson, Brady was playing. Um, we were actually quite strong in midfield, and the signing of Robson. Although I liked Robson as a player, was clearly you know um, uh, not what we not what really what we needed. We did, we had strength in in midfield, um, uh, and 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 we history repeated itself because what we really needed was to you know shore up the defence because we had injury prone central defence. We had some good ones, but they they tended not to be there very often. Between them, Gale yeah. and Martin. Gale and Martin. Yeah. Um, 
you know, we ended up for a lot of that time, you know, we ended up with Gary Strodder and Paul Hilton. And it's yeah. like fast forward to that to that selling of, of Ferdinand. You know, OK, so you've sold that money, then at least you've got to make sure your central defence. And that the relegation season 2003, we ended up with bloody Breen and Daly and Repka. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and that, that the team fell apart around them. You have to have a strong spine, don't you? You have to yeah, have yeah. a central defence is, is so important. <laughs> And I, 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 what I would say, though, a lot of what we're talking about is quite interesting, talking about Lampard and then Ince and Ferdinand. Again, it does come back to this thing about the way you leave the club. Like, the, the when you think about how we um, receive returning players, it's pretty damn binary. Like, you think about Rio, I remember us clapping him scoring the winning goal for Leeds against us. We clapped him back to the halfway line, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Carlos Tevez, I don't think I ever saw a player get that sort of reception on his return. Michael Carrick always used to get a clap. And then you've got the flip side, which is Lampard, Defoe, um, and clearly Ince. I think it, what I would say is that, Phil, you said previously it's this kind of like naivety. Well, I think there is precedent there that, that surely players these days... Scott Parker's another one. I don't think he ever got booed, did he, when he, when he came back? Or maybe he did because uh, yeah, well, I mean, social, I mean, social media has, has absorbed a lot of what happens on match day, in a way. But there, there's a lot of ire directed towards um, Craig Bellamy, uh, Scott Parker, you know. Um, oh, yeah, fucking hate Parker. Those people hate Parker. Uh, you know, there's a sort of a Facebook. There's a Facebook conversation where you know I, you know I've I defended. Now that there's a Facebook page to go with this website, I, I, I sort of, you know, made a very weak attempt. Though actually, I think it's quite a strong def- attempt to defend Parker by going, the game before he leaves, he scores. So that's how uncommitted he was to West Ham. And somebody on Facebook went, oh, yeah, he didn't really celebrate the goal, though, did he? And no. went, okay, so are we going on celebrations rather than what they do on the field? Do you know what I mean? It's like, and, and this is, you, And you, you're, you're so right. Because also, again, Ala Carrick, Parker, spent pretty much half a season in the championship with us. This was a player who had won, whether it was the Players' Player of the Year or the Fans' Player of the Year, this guy was an England international who came down to the championship with us. Yeah, By the way, all of this... It, is, it wasn't half a season. It was about... It was, it was half a dozen games, surely. It wasn't... He went, yeah, it was just basically the, way. the end of the transfer window. But yeah, either, went, went, either way, that is to be absolutely commended and by the way jim it made me it made me think by the way about um talking about bad exits and good exits jim you sent around the question uh, by by email earlier which i'd love to hear what you, your guys um answers to about your biggest regret as a west ham fan because my biggest regret as a west ham fan i was thinking about this is that I only got to see a season and a half of Dimitri Payet playing for West Ham. So yeah. Because he, for me, he... And, and bear in mind that I, I started in kind of the early 90s. Um, and obviously, I adored Di Canio, I adored Tevez. But Payet, I think, is the highest quality. He, he was truly world-class whilst playing for us. And we saw that yeah. at, at Euro 2016. Um, and I think that... So far, I think it is my biggest regret as a West Ham fan that I only got to see a season and a half of Pae playing for West Ham. What, what's your guys? Well, my my regret is not so much about is a personal one. Is that 
I, I had a big period of time where I, d- I didn't go, I didn't go to games um, because I'd gone to university in the West Country. There was no football there. I couldn't really afford to come back. Didn't have anyone to go with really. Um, and I just got out of the habit. I got into watching rugby. Um, so I got it was the 1985-86 season that hooked me back in. Um, and then you know me and Phil started to go going a bit as you said the season or two after that. Um, uh, so I regret really having missed because I think we played some fantastic football in the early 80s. You know that 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 um, Division Two team that won that won the cup, got to the League Cup final. Um, you know promotion, I think, with a record number of points. You know, and and we were and playing in that league with players of the quality of Brooking and uh, and um, uh, Ray Stewart and, and Co. And mm-hmm. um, I, yeah, it's a shame I didn't see that. And I was going to ask just just apropos of what we were talking about earlier, whether or not because I didn't go then, I don't know whether uh, what kind of reception Paul Allen got. Um, I wonder whether he got a bit of the treatment. I don't know. Yeah. Benji. Quick question. Quick question. Because um, I saw it was. Birthday recently, um, Alan Devonshire. He's a player that I know so little about. What were, what years were, were were he was he sort of at the forum? And what because he sounds like an incredible player. Played pretty much throughout the eighties, really, didn't he? I right. mean, in the, he's in the cup final team. In uh, so he went to come late seventies. We signed him from something like seventy nine, didn't we? Yeah, from was it South or somewhere? He's gone. If it was from non league, wasn't it? Tell me more about him, because Uncle Jeff always talks about Alan Devonshire as one of the greats of West Ham, and I know nothing about him. Again, I didn't see him all that much, but, uh, um, uh, yeah, he was, I mean, he was um, sort of tricksy. He was uh, very tricksy. He could could turn on a sixpence. Um, The ball would come into him, and it would stick to him, and he would sort of turn very quickly. He was very quick over... uh, sort of 10 yards he uh, was a brilliant sort of passer I'm trying to think of a a modern player that he's like Um, the pace of the game is so different now because he you know he was um, flimsy and lacking in Mm. Uh, he's yeah. very, very culty yeah. player. I mean, he's in a way he's like Felipe Anderson could be, uh, uh, if if he had you know just more gumption. I think uh, he's more, more Lanzini at his best. That when Lanzini is on song, there was a similar similar that kind of sense that the ball is stuck to the end of his foot. That he but he plays with his head up and has uh, has vision as well. Um, uh, a really kind of kind of silkily skilled uh, uh, player, you know? Well, it's, it's quick feed, isn't it? Because because a lot of that, the boys of 86 team, um, there's quite often it start, a move starts with a sort of, um, you know, 20-yard ball from a defender to someone on one of the flanks, Warwood maybe, or Devonshire, and then we work it towards their area, but still trying to pass quickly. And Devonshire was a player that, you know, it comes into his feet and then he turns and moves and he'll run a few yards and then there's runners, you know, moving forward. It's an incredibly attack-minded team. Frank McAvenny, you know, you can't underestimate Frank McAvenny's sort of influence on the boys of 85, 86 team. Uh, because you know his 
Devonshire's next ball is just try and find McAvenny, I think. Um, I'm just looking. I just looked at some of um because I, I was on his Wikipedia and I saw that he had eight England caps. This is quite fascinating. I found a I found a page, which is England players who were playing for West Ham, and um in the 80s. Do you mind if I just go, very quickly go through some of this? Because I think you'll find it fascinating. So, in the 80s, um, there weren't that many. There were one, two, three. Only four West Ham players played for England in the 80s. And I'm sure you can name a few of them, but one of them is Paul Goddard with one cap. Cotty, um, Cot- three caps. Alvin Martin, uh, 17 caps. He went to the World Cup 86, didn't he? And then yeah. Devonshire, eight caps. But that's interesting that that throughout that period, when we, I guess the, the reason was is that everyone was English in the 80s in, in, in the top flight. Just Would you be interested in hearing... Players since then who have played for England. If I just if I go through them, I'll be very quick. Sure. Um, so after 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 Tony Cotty, the next player to play for England that was a West Ham player was Rio Ferdinand. Um, then Ian Wright played apparently whilst he was playing for us, got a couple of caps. Stuart Pearce got a couple of caps. Frank Lampard got his first caps, as did Joe Cole, Michael Carrick, and then and then you've got to go to um, David James. Trevor Sinclair, who, of course, went to World Cup 2002. Paul Kuczewski got a cap whilst playing for us. Kieran Dyer, Upson, Ashton, Colton Cole, seven caps whilst playing for us. Rob Green, Scott Parker, and then we're getting quite contemporary now. This is from 2002 onwards. Andy Carroll. Stuart Downing got that one cap when he when he was going through a good, a good vein of form with us. Aaron Cresswell, three caps. Joe Hart played four t- times whilst playing for West Ham apparently and then of course most recently Declan Rice um, but it's interesting that, that that 80s team so few of them apart from Brooking obviously got England caps yeah yeah Dickens is the interesting one because he, he he was a he was class I thought they, everyone everyone um, he suffered a little because everyone kind of compared him to Brooking playing in the same central position obviously kind of modelled his game on Brookings in many ways sort of kind of upright head up you know, great passer, but he had pay. He had pace that Brooking didn't have, and uh, and an eye for goal as well. I love to do. I love Dickens. I really love Dickens. Uh, uh, a lot, you know. Uh, the, I mean, obviously, the story about um, you know the um, eighty five, eighty six team was that we weren't on TV. There was no football on TV. That's right. In that season, so the, you know that's our that's our most high performing team. I think if football had been on telly. You know, we'd we'd have had lots of internationals off the back of that season. You know, yeah. Alvin would have played. Yeah, you know, Alvin would have got more England caps than he got. Uh, you know, possibly players that were in that team that didn't play. Dev probably. I mean, Dev probably might have got caps either side of that. But it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's worth if you haven't, Benji. It's worth having a look on the on the Facebook group of those. Um, of those videos that Rob Banks has put Rob up. Rob Banks. Season. I'll have a look. Um, it's just that some of the football is... And, and actually, although we didn't play, you know, we didn't do very well, actually some of the football the next season, the highlights, you know, it's still the same style. It's incredibly direct and pacey. It's not... Though, you know, there's a lot of the arguments when Allardyce came in about the West Ham way and, 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 and he you know, um, sort of caricatured it as people wanting tippy-tappy football. But that's actually wasn't, that's not what the West Ham way is. And and that team, which kind of, um, you know, uh, in many ways epitomised it, um, 
played incredibly, got the ball from back to front very, very quickly. They would often play little kind of um, give and goes in midfield. The forwards weren't big, so they, the ball was played up to their feet and then they'd just touch it off and go. Mark Ward, of course, was, you know, instrumental in that kind of yeah, attacking football. But uh, Dickens was, you know, we had pace in the team, um, you know, and, and obviously a real, real potent goal threat up front. And we were solid at the back, you know. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? It's that you know those years after that, you know, the catastrophic falling off a cliff that happened after the eighty-five, eighty-six season is no, it's it's difficult, it's inexplicable, and it's good to not strengthening in some particular areas. Benji, yeah, yeah. I was just going to ask. Sorry, just because somebody asked me this, just just to, we've talked a lot about the kind of eighties and nineties West Ham team. Um, just to bring it right, somebody asked me recently, and it really made me think. Who is your favourite current West Ham player? Uh, and my answer, after much thought, um, and it was actually very obvious when I got there, was Mikel Antonio, um, for, for many reasons. But who is your favourite current West Ham player? God. <laughs> it's been so long since we've played football that I can't remember who's in the team. Um, um. Well, Let me just, what, what's your thinking? I, very quickly, the reason I like Mikel Antonio so much is that, first of all, I think he's he's um, really quite an extraordinary player. And and is and I bloody love a player who has chaos factor. And, oh, my God, we, you know, at his best, Mikel does. I also like him because he's a real character. He's great fun. And there's just not that many great fun footballers anymore. So, yeah, that's why I love Mikel. Uh, yeah, I like him. I really like him a lot. Um, I also, I think Rice as well. I, I, you know, I just think Rice is is just a class act. Um, very fond of him. Um, I don't think they're a particularly lovable team at the moment. No, no they're not, are they? <laughs> um, I mean, I think you know. I think um, I like Snoddy. I like Snodgrass. Yeah, it's not grass. I think because of the, you know, in, in the, over the last few years, because we've got a bit of time to get used to him. I mean, I, you know, I like a Bonner, and I like him because he, he gets a lot of flack, but he turns up every week, and he's played for this team that's, you know, um, actually had this sort of slightly catastrophic last few years, and um, he must be getting close to the sort of second longest server after Noble in the team now. You know, Ogbonna is in the triumphant 2015-16 team. Yeah. With, uh, you know, our fantastic finish against Manchester United and our, and our good finish in the league. He's in that team, plays in that team, and has gone through this shit that's happened afterwards. He's probably the only one other than Antonio and Noble Cresswell, obviously. Um, and uh, I think he comes in for a lot of flack, and it makes me want to kind of back him up more because I don't think he, you know, is... is there are, there are people on, you know, there's another Facebook group that, um, you know, I know you and I, Jim, belong to. The, the, there's a few people on it. You know, I think they are really kind of unreconstructed fat blokes messics that there's a slight race thing. That they just think he's the worst footballer there's ever been. And, mm. yeah, there is not. Why does... And, and, you know, the same some news to go, well, why did Antonio keep getting dropped... By, by successive West Ham managers. 
when there are reasons for that, you know, and uh, they're the wrong reasons. Same thing with uh, Ogbonna. You know, well, why do you think he keeps getting asked back? If and more, than, more than that, he has played as a centre-back for Italy three times whilst playing for West Ham. It's like, yeah, you yeah. have to play as, as a centre-back for Italy, you've you got to be good. And yeah. yes, obviously there are other centre backs ahead of him during that time. But you know, the the, the guy was part of the was the part of the um, uh, what was it? 2016 squad um, where Conte took Italy quite far in the Euros. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, he, you know, it was the group game. He he started in the in the group stage game, which they they were already through. But you know, when when Italy uh, Ireland, sorry, with that Robbie Brady header, yeah, beat, yeah. beat um, Italy in the last game. <laughs> Funnily, Brady, I think, gets up above Ogbonna to, to, to yeah. score. But the point was, Ogbonna was good enough to be in that excellent, well, surprisingly good, actually, um, uh, Conte 2016 Euros team. Yeah, I mean, when he first came in, he identified him, didn't he, as the key, you know, the keystone in that three-man defence, and he played in the middle of it. And uh, I think he was probably the only ever present under under, under that, you know, brief Moyes tenureship, and. You know, I thought he was he was outstanding in that in that part of that season, really. It does, um, and what he does, does, what he does now, I think, is that is that he does exactly what we need him for, and I hope we keep him for a while. Is that we've we've got um, potentially Balbuena is may, maybe you know maybe slightly better than him now but you know, personally i'd go for Ogbonna and diop as our back too but either way diop is very young balbuena is 28 and has only been in the premier league for, for a couple for a couple of years Ogbonna is the kind of slight elder statesman there he's been in at the top level for quite some time now and that's the role you want him to play yeah yeah well balbuena is not really showing us that he's better he's, he's had a couple of uh, reprieves this season you know we're like yeah, he was great. You know, the pairing last season became Diop and Balbuena. Uh, Diop had a kind of uh, falling off of form, so um, Ogbonna came back in. This season, um, Balbuena's had a couple of bites of the cherry, uh, but keeps being replaced by uh, Ogbonna because he comes back and, you know, there's a point at which, you know, lack of match fitness doesn't really run as a sort of excuse anymore. Just just um, thinking about this season, and, and forgive me if you, you guys have already discussed this um, in the last few weeks, I'm interested to know how, if you could just, if you could conclude this season, how you'd do it, uh, and, and what you think of the various options that have been discussed. Personally, one that I quite like is the idea that you kind of draw a line now in the league, give Liverpool the title, for God's sake, you know, um, and, but no one gets relegated, but West Brom and Leeds come up, and so you have a 22-team uh, yeah. league next year. That's, that's the idea that I like the most. What about you guys? Um, five teams go down <laughs> the season after, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, right. So, you would go back. Oh, I'd, I'd love to go back to the days of a 22 team league, to be honest. Oh, uh, really? Um, yeah, I'm the traditionalist, I, 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 I liked it like that. Um, why is that? Why do you think that's better, Jim? Well, uh, more football for the fan, um, yeah, to be honest, more, more games. I was an away fan, um, and I just think, um, you know, I I, I think a bit, just a, a tougher test. Um, I, you know, I I I'd like old fashioned things. Really, I'd go back to two points for a win as well. 
it's always been logical to me. It always feels, you know, that if you've really battled away and got a point away from home, uh, that should be a sharing of the points, really. Uh, but uh, interesting, being old-fashioned. What about you? What about you, Phil? Um, yeah, I don't. I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, the, 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 you, there was a conversation about a closed doors tournament to get to cycle through those last games. Um, something you know, like a tournament for four venues or something. Uh, the players are isolated in hotels. Um, yeah. Games are under closed, you know closed doors, uh, and I'm like, no, no, uh, you know, why don't we just wait till the crowds can come back? It's like, I, I sort of understand, you know, the um, people's, you know, the way you could make a virtue out of this crisis by having an incredibly exciting televised tour. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that the interesting thing there is that I've heard that argued for as a way of making people stay at home. Like, let's say that you've got it's um, the pubs are all still closed. This is going to go out for free on the on 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 the, you know, iPlayer or whatever it is. That probably won't happen. Um, But the games are happening, you know, four games a day for the for three weeks. Well, people will stay at home. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, you know, unfortunately, there's still a thing that people want to watch football, you know, together, uh, uh, you know, at a park. Event football, people want to watch it in sort of like groups of people. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know what will happen. Um, You know, I think there is is an appetite to just finish it over the summer. Now the tournaments have gone. Yeah. and now the you know the Tokyo Olympics are gone and the Euros are gone. The games could keep going till July if we wanted to finish the football season in the summer, and I suspect that might happen. By the yeah. way, I think the fact, the fact that the Euros the fact that the Euros has been suspended possibly means that we keep hold of Declan Rice for another season. You know, because I think yeah. if he had played well at the Euros, we would have really struggled. Yeah. 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 That's true. That would have showcased him. But I'm not sure he would have. I think, you know, I'm not sure he would have. Uh, he'd have been in the squad. I'm not sure he'd have nailed a place down. Um, Agree. I, I think he would have. Um, I think they would have played winks against teams that they thought we'd beat. Yeah. And Declan against teams that have got that, that are better than us. Yeah. And, and have yeah. Got a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think so. This is a conversation we've had a couple of times in these podcasts over the last few weeks. It's like, you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate quite a lot and saying, well, what is Declan Rice? What sort of footballer is he? Because I still don't think we quite know what he is. If he if he was really attacking midfielder, they'd go, yeah. well, you know, well, there's a couple of other guys. Mason Mount. His oh, yeah. No, he's, he's not that mate, at all. You know. What he is, he, he is absolutely a defensive midfielder, you know, in sort of championship yeah. manager terms. He's a DMC. And that is it. That That's the one problem yeah. that he's got. He's not an all-rounder. He is an old-fashioned, sort of like, he's you know, not quite a Makaleli type player because Makaleli was about anticipation rather than tackling. But Declan yeah. Rice just wants to tackle people all day. He is a defensive midfielder and that's it. And sometimes... If that's what you need, he's just about the best in the Premier League. But the way that the formations work yeah, in the Premier League these days with the, four, 
with the 4-3-3, there's not necessarily space for that pure defensive midfielder. No, absolutely. In international football, though, a, a role for a, for a player who sits in front of the back four and distributes the ball from deep, you know, he, he that's, the, that's the role he would play in international football. The issue yeah. is the England squad now is a bit more flexible because... Klopp has made Henderson into exactly such a right. player. Um, you know, You're right. he's, he's turned him from a good player into a into a approaching world class player, and that that makes a big difference because he, Henderson can play any position in midfield now, really. So you can yeah, and, and and then you have those um, uh, you know distributors of the ball, you know. Um, you know, like you know, sort of Shelby, they're going well. Um, Shelby's got that sort of Ian Bishop-like dis- distribution uh, talent. Uh, the um, uh, you know the Everton guy that now plays for Chelsea, um, Andy. Barkley. Yeah, Ross Barkley. You go well. Okay, you've got Declan Rice. You've got Ross Barkley, and Ross Barkley does show better chops as an attacking player. I think Declan is starting to add that to his game. Every time we, you know, grow in confidence inside of a game, Declan starts to make more runs and grow. The Bournemouth game that we won 4-0. In the second half, he's starting to make runs and make things happen. Actually, the Arsenal game, when, when you yeah. know, we only lost that 1-0. And in the second half, we were just a better team. And uh, he was really grew into that game. But... You know, Garasaka might go, well, Barkley's already there. This guy who's growing into this role. I'm- I think I think Southgate is smart enough to realise that, that um, Declan Rice is a horse for a course. And, and, and that course is when you need a defensive midfielder to close down a brilliant attacking midfielder on the other opposition side. That, that, and it's absolutely fine that that's what Declan is. Because, you know, if he can become world-class at being a defensive midfielder, wonderful for us as long as we have him and wonderful for England. He's never going to be a Ross Barkley or a, or a Mason Mount or someone that kind of gets 10 to 15 goals a season or anything like that. That's, that's not Declan Rice. And and in terms of tournament football and the squad for a tournament, he can also, you know, if you had injuries or or problems, somebody sent off or something, he could play in central defence as well. Very good point. Very good point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, I I still wonder whether that's his best position. Um, Interesting. He was a fantastic central defender for us. Yeah. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. 
Talking of players that we uh, um, would like to have seen more of, um, the West Ham websites this time, you know, in the past, today, today in history, whatever they call it, um, featured us in the championship under Sam Allardyce beating Brighton 6-0 with a hat-trick from Ricardo Vazte. Of course, uh, this podcast's possibly favourite player of all time. <laughs> and, um, and I still, you know, looking at him in that game, you know, obviously we, it was a, you know, it's a funny season, Allardyce's championship season. And uh, it's bizarrely come up in, in, in anniversaries and in discussions uh, quite a lot in the lockdown, but uh, it was a funny season. It, looking back on it, it, it's, it seems more celebratory than it actually was. It was, it, it was in fact a grind and we were worried a lot of the time, but we won 14 times away. You know, it should on paper be a celebratory season, but we could see, you know, for me, when people go, Allardyce will keep you up. For me, I say he shows you how he'll send you down every game you play. He shows you exactly how you, he'll send you down. And, you know, I think he, you know, he, he is a lucky manager. He's, you know. Um, Vastay was, was I loved Vastay. He came in, he he scored pretty much as soon as he started, and then scored a lot in the rest of that season and was a terrific player. Benji, I remember when um, he played against us for Barnsley that same season. Yes, I remember thinking, "Fucking hell, this, this guy's great," Dynamite. and um, and. I remember thinking he's, he's got the lot. He's like a kind of championship version of Cristiano Ronaldo that he's tall. He's quick. He's very muscular. He can score every, he can play, score yeah, his yeah. left foot, his right foot, his head. Um, I love, I loved Vazte in that season. And if, and if I recall correctly, was his hat trick goal against Brighton an overhead kick? Yes. But yeah. Third goal. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, you know, and he, he, it's a really good bit of refereeing, actually, because he does shove some. He, he physically, with both hands, shoves a defender away from him to make that space, which sort of should be a foul. But actually, it's just happened from one of them to one of our players before that. Standing in front of him is, I think, Nolan. And a Brighton player just shoves him to the floor. Then it comes over. Vaste shoves one of their players and then does his overkick. And I've got, it's funny. I'm, I'm one of the things I'm doing to fill the footballing void at the moment um, is is um, the, so the Totally Football Show, which is the the James Richardson podcast that I, that I occasionally go on. Oh, yeah. Some wonderful character there has found on YouTube and wherever else every goal scored at every European Championships and World Cup since 1980. And so I, I yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll um, it's on my Twitter, but I'll, I'll put it up again. Um, it, it, it's a joy, and I'm currently, I'm actually, I'm almost halfway. So I'm, I'm, in fact, I am. I'm on Euro 2000 at the moment. Do you know what breaks my heart watching all, all of these tournaments is the number of goals, amazing winners, epic celebrations that would have been fucking ruled out by VAR, and you just, it's like that's the beauty of watching. 
watching these old games. Like you're watching like whether it's Tardelli scoring the winner or that Fabio Grosso goal in the semifinals of World Cup 2006, where you've got these incredibly yeah. emotional moments of celebration. And the idea that you might not see those anymore, those absolute yeah. outpouring yeah. emotion yeah. release. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, sorry to bring up the fucking V word, but because you're right. I wonder if that, I wonder yeah. if that Vazte bicycle kick would have been disallowed. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's a fucking disgraceful, isn't it? I mean, it, um, you know, Vaz, and then Vaz-Tay's goal in that brings us back up to the Premier League. You know, uh, what a fantastic goal that was! You know, brilliant. Um, it was, uh, you know, happened right in front of us, didn't it? it happened in front of all yeah. of us, and uh, you think he's gonna, bl- you think he's blasting it over. You, you know, your your perception. Every nerve is tingling, and when it comes off his foot, you fear it's going to go over because its trajectory is so high, and it hits the roof of the net. It stays inside the net. But, you know, that how quickly you think uh, is just going, it's over. It's in. You know, in that moment. Uh, you know, remember, you know, I was the Decanio, you know, the greatest goal ever against Wimbledon. Um, there are those times when you go, you know, I just went, that's in. And, and I knew it was in. The second he leapt in the A's when it's in, you just have a sense. The same way with the um, Antonio, because that happened in front of us, although we were about a mile above it, uh, the Thunderdome. Antonio's cross for Carroll's overhead against Crystal oh. Palace. Something in you goes, that's in. I just knew it was in. And those millisecond things that you sort of see in real time, Jim, you know, we talked about the goal against Manchester City where Hughes bizarrely stopped his run and passed it seemingly backwards to a thundering Julian Dix who just ran and hit it in real time without breaking his stride. And you just went, oh, that's in. And you just, <laughs> you just knew it was in. Um, those goals are amazing. And that, uh, you know, that that's the 4-1? Yeah. Yes. I loved, I loved that game. It was one of my first, weirdly, I was sitting in the, um, what is that? What I think was, it was 4 came, two, The centenary mate. lower. 4-2. You're right, mate. You are right, mate. Um, and it, I was randomly, I was sitting with my, my brother-in-law in the centenary lower. Um, and again, so that must have been like 95, 96? Um, yeah, that's and, it, yeah. and it, it was also the game in which um, Danny was playing. Lock up your daughter's Danny. Yeah, he's and he had a fantastic. He scored. He had a fantastic game, and it was just one of those amazingly memorable games because it was a really so- hot, sunny day. I was. I didn't normally sit in the centenary lower, but I was there. Standing, I must have been like eleven, twelve. I was pretending to be a hooligan. Julian Dick scores twice, including one thunder bastard. Danny scores. Just what a game. What a game. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the most extraordinary goalkeeping error from McCloskey. Do you remember? He kind of just drops the yeah. ball at, at, um, at Niall Quinn's feet. Really, really bizarrely. Yeah. Um, very weird. But, uh, you know, sort of Vaz Tay was um, such a sort of you know, cult hero for us. It's such a shame that, you know, there there are two players from that sort of Allardyce stroke billet era that it's just, that were really 
badly treated by injury, and those were Sacco and Vaste. You know, Sacco, Allardyce was looking to drop Sacco in the second he played in favour of Andy Carroll. And uh, Sacco, who's clearly a fucking fantastic footballer, seemed yeah. to have to convince his own manager that he could actually play the game of football. And, uh, you know, uh, oh, fucking hell. Um, and Vastay. Vastay did have injuries at crucial times. Same with Obiang. Yeah. Same with Obiang. Just those players, if, if we could have built, you know... Unfortunately, Bilic had the same malaise. It's if they went missing, he sort of forgot about them and didn't want to try and work them back into the team. Um, and both Obiang and Sacco, for them, Vazte, were, were players that, ah, God, they could have really done a lot more. You know, some there are some players that they just fall and fall and fall once their chance is gone with a sort of big team. They disappear. Stuart Slater, you know, so many, aren't there? That, you know, they, they sort of have their chance. If they stayed with one team and stayed fit, they could quite possibly have played for their countries, gone on to bigger things. But somehow injuries slightly them over, a change of manager slightly fucked them over, and those are three guys that, you know, I think Vaz Take, you know, really could have gone on to be a fantastic world-beating footballer, and what's, he, did, what's he, nice. he did pay for Portugal, and he did, uh, you know, yeah, play, yeah, yeah. But. I think what's nice is that he, is that even though he didn't quite fulfil what he could have achieved as you know for West Ham as a footballer maybe he was beloved for that promotion season and crucially for that goal like he will always be like a bit of a cult as you say a bit of a cult figure at West Ham yeah 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 for, for me he's almost a definitive cult West Ham player you know mm-hmm. he he you know I just love that guy I fucking love that guy is fantastic and he's a big obviously a big staple of this podcast for various reasons but you know, a t- you know he really did well, so. well, he's your answer to Benji's first question then really isn't he about the yeah he's a cult hero yeah for me he's a cult West Ham footballer you know and you know before that we start slightly talked on this level you know similarly Abu holds a <laughs> strong place in my heart Guy could fucking play, you know. It's, it's not a sort of, not like a gimmick. He could play. The one we'll never know whether he could play or not was, um, oh, fuck, I've forgotten his name. You know, our South American player that played in a front three with Canute and Di Canio. Um, one shot, one shot. Hello, one shot. One shot. He was one of the... Most confusing footballers I've ever seen. He, and I was, don't know so he was one day, one day, kind of sublime. One moment, not with not one day within a match, and the next looked like he didn't know which which. Yeah, you know, his brain didn't know which was his left leg and which was his right. Yeah, leg. He was even like, when he even when he had a great season, there was one season where he scored sixteen goals for us, and I still swore at the time that he was shit. Like. Yeah, he was yeah. like a highlights player. He was a highlights player. He, if you would just watch the highlights of a game, you'd think he was good. If you had to watch him for 90 minutes, you realise he yeah, was yeah. awful. He was extraordinary. Yeah. He, he was, was um, a weird mix. Uh, um, 
Yeah, there was a there was a game we played with a front three of Canute, Wanchop, and Decania, and we sort of murdered the other team. And I remember the the manager of the opposing team on match of the day, might have been Watford, saying that front three is unplayable. No team can play against such talented front three as Freddie Canute, Paolo Wanchop, and Paolo Decania, and that's fucking seems true you know yeah. in retrospect I'm going fucking hell but I don't think we really played in a formation that put all three of them up front every game you know we had the other, we had the other Paolo on the bench Paolo Kitson who was still there at the time yeah. yes who was still there at the time yeah um, but one shot was was frustrating he, he was a frustrating player very very it's very work him out I tell you who might turn into a, a cult figure, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing more of when it comes out. His Boeing, absolutely exciting. I always forget him. about him. Yeah, absolutely. He's he really looks like you know. It, it's such a sort of weird. Uh, you know, this is such a. I keep coming back to this theme. You know, I think on this podcast, in probably when we started doing it in two thousand and. Seven, I kind of talked about just the basic competence of old footballers compared to new footballers and saying that, you know, um, uh, uh, Martin Allen could do everything. He could trap, dribble, you know, pass, shoot, head, take a dead ball and, and just be moaning what footballers were like then. Um, Bowen is literally like an old freshman. He comes in and immediately knows what he's doing, joins a team he's never played for before and comes in and just does what he did at his previous club without any, there's no difficulty, there's no settling in, there's no, you know, none of that. And footballers used to be like that. You know, Trevor Sinclair scores two goals on his debut for us. There's no settling in. There's no, he's got to get used to the shape of the team. The manager's got to get his ideas across to him. You know, Michael Hughes, you know, we brought that bloke from Strasbourg. He turns up, he, he just begins playing on the right, He's just fucking great. And that Bowen guy is exactly like him. Sounds, sounds like he's all a bit Brexity because I'm talking about kind of like <laughs> oh, British footballers who come from the British Football League. You know, <laughs> they can come in and all these foreigners who turn up from Spain, they don't know what they're doing. But it's, I mean, it's just the footballer, isn't it? It's like, you know, Felipe Addison and, and Fournells, there's this bedding in period. I, I, I is it really that different football in this country to how it is abroad? Because because Bowen came in and just began doing what he did at his previous club with this new bunch of ten other cunts he's never met before and just starts playing. You know, no problems, no problems at all, no betting in. He really looked like he grabbed the game by the scruff of the neck. I, yeah, I really enjoyed the bits that we saw of him. By the way, I'm slightly wondered whether producer Leon needs to go to bed. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yes. How long have we been going? Yeah. Yeah, long. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, well, I would happily. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would happily keep chatting about Jared Bowen for hours, but but poor old producer Leon. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, 
yeah, let's wrap this up. Okay. Um, well, I think that's covered uh, uh, our agenda for this evening. Um, any other thoughts, gentlemen? No, no, no. no I'm, I'm uh, feeling quite drowsy myself, to be honest. That was lovely. Thanks for having me. It was great fun. Well, uh, this has been Stock Hammer Time. My name's Phil Whelans. With me have been, as always, Jim Grant. Cheerio. And Benji Lanyardo. Stay, stay home, protect the NH, whatever there is, do those things. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Come on, you irons. This is a Playback Media production. Get all the associated links for this podcast at westhampodcast.com. Sports Social Podcast Network.